All right, so we start our discussion of the Bible and your questions about the Bible. The first reading is from Psalm 119, verses 105 through 112. If you look in a Bible, this will have the heading Nun, N-U-N, because in this long poem, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, the eight-line stanzas, every first word begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes through the whole alphabet. I don't know how they did that. I don't have a poetry mind. It's phenomenal. Your word is a lamp before my feet and a light for my journey. I have sworn and I fully mean it. I will keep your righteous rules. I have been suffering so much. Lord, make me live again according to your promise. Please, Lord, accept my spontaneous gifts of praise. Teach me your rules. Through my life, though my life is in constant danger, I won't forget your instruction. Though the wicked have set a trap for me, I won't stray from your precepts. Your laws are my possession forever, because they, have been, they are my heart's joy. I have decided to keep your statutes forever, every last one. Then our second reading is from 2 Timothy 3. Yeah, so you're, if you were at Tuesday morning Bible study that I couldn't be at, that Mary did, she gave you 1 Timothy 3, which is totally different and has nothing to do with the Bible. So sorry about that, if you were confused. It happens. We mix it up. So 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 17. But you have paid attention to my teachings, conduct, purpose, faithfulness, patience, love, and endurance. You have seen me experience physical abuse and ordeals in places such as Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. I put up with all sorts of abuse, and the Lord rescued me from it all. In fact, anyone who wants to live a holy life in Jesus will be harassed. But evil people and swindlers will grow even worse, and they will deceive others while being deceived themselves. But you must continue with the things you have learned and found convincing. You know who taught you. Since childhood, you have made known the holy scriptures that help you to be wise in the ways that lead to salvation, through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. So let's talk a little generalities about the Bible to begin, before we get to the first question. First off, the Bible is not a book. It is a library of books. In the one I'm holding, there are 66 of them. In the Catholic Bible, there are 78. Yeah, there's eight more. In the Orthodox Bible, there's 84? There's four more. So 82. In the um, Coptic Orthodox Bible, there's 91 books, which is the oldest version of the Bible. So... That's where we start. The Bible's not a book. It's a library of books written over a long period of time, thousands of years, and they started out orally transmitted down generations. So one of my pet peeves, as someone who studies the Bible for a living, is the idea that 
The Bible is simple, and you pick it up in your private time and read it and apply it to your life, and that's it. I don't recommend that. I don't. I really don't recommend, not that reading the Bible is bad. It's not. However, it was never meant to be engaged privately as individuals. They didn't do it that way in the Bible. It was only engaged in a group or in a community. In the letters that we have that make up the New Testament, those were spread around and read in the community and discussed in the community, not individually. So I really struggle with kind of the idea that really the Bible's simple to understand. You open it and you read it and you apply it to your life. I've been reading the Bible for a long time. I don't find it simple at all. I don't find it easy to understand. Every once in a while you get a little spot that's like, oh, that seems pretty straightforward. A lot of it's not. So what do we do with it? So don't take me out of context. I did not say reading the Bible is not important or you shouldn't do it. That's not what I said. But it's meant to be done in a community because we need different perspectives. We bring different experiences to it. And we learn through one another and those experiences. In every Bible study or discussion group I've ever led or been a part of, I have learned something about the Bible I didn't know or a new perspective that I had never thought of because someone else saw it a very different way. And that helps to illuminate what the Bible is for me. So this is why I like what we're doing instead of regular sermons. We're discussing the Bible, which goes back to the tradition of discussing the Bible. And if you go back even further to the rabbinic tradition of wrestling with what the Bible means and arguing with the Bible and one another, they have volumes from famous rabbis over time that are just that, wrestling with the Bible and arguing about what it means. So, we are not doing anything wrong. Contrary to what some say, this is how you engage the Bible in a serious way. Any questions about that part in my view of the Bible? And you're welcome to disagree with me. I, I am not thus saith the Lord up here. This is just me. There's no prophet. So what has your experience been with the Bible in the past? Yeah. So Mary had a friend who said she read through the Bible twice, which made her feel guilty. So she went home and tried it and was confused when she tried to do the same. Yeah. Any others? Lots of memorization as a kid. Lots of memorization as a kid. There are some faith traditions that put a lot of emphasis on memorizing verses of the Bible. I am not... I mean, I had to memorize stuff in confirmation growing up in the ELCA Lutheran Church, but I'm not a memorize verses 
kind of mind. I'm a concept and connection and that kind of mind. So I can tell you kind of the arc of a theme of a book, but if someone says, well, you know what Philippians 4.3 says, I'll be like, I have no idea what that says. So that's not how my brain works. Any others? Deb. So just trouble with the contradictions, and we'll talk about that because that's one of our questions. Picking and choosing sections of the Bible your own personal need. Yeah, picking and choosing parts of the Bible that fit your own ideology or your needs or agendas. Long history of that. Shut up. Right. So, so if you want kids to love the Bible, why would you make it a punishment that you have to learn certain numbers of verses as punishment for doing something? Yeah. Sure. And that way I get more out of it. But like um, we were talking about too, as children, um, one of my favorite memories is of Annie. I said, I want to get a picture of you today. You're so pretty. She said, wait, I need to get my Jesus. And she went and we kind of got the children's library that we look at, but we didn't read a lot. We just talked about stories. And she was probably two and a half. And that is just one of my favorite memories. We need to be open with it. Yeah. So she likes to use a study Bible. Um, so this is a non-study Bible, just thickness reference. I use this when I'm up here. I have an Oxford study Bible that's about that thick. And it's got notes and articles, and it tries to make connections and clarifications for you. So there are some really good study Bibles that scholars have put together to try and help you engage scripture. And also she shared that your granddaughter? My daughter. Your daughter. So as a two-and-a-half-year-old, you know, she wanted to take her picture and said, I need to get my Jesus and got her kid's Bible. So it was a good thing, a positive thing for her. Yes, Carol? Why is it the Holy Bible? Why is it the Holy Bible? It's a good question. At some point, after it was compiled, it got that tag on it, the Holy Bible. I don't know when that occurred. It was probably a publishing decision to make it you know, appeal a certain way, but yeah, why the Holy Bible or the Holy Scriptures? What does it mean to be holy? See, I think it often gives you different images of God. Sometimes there's an angry God, a loving God. It's just, it's hard to get an image of, consistent image of God through what you read. Yeah, it is, it, you do not get a consistent image of God if you read through the Bible. You get some very different images of God. You get an angry, wrathful God. I saw, I saw a, a non-Christian comedian who had a little blurb about the Bible in their stand-up, and they said, have you ever tried to read the Bible? By chapter 5, God's so sick of humans that God's ready to wipe them off the face of the earth with a flood. It's not great for, you know, it doesn't bode well for humans. Yeah, you, 
we talk about God in one way, but you can find passages in the Bible that God does not seem very loving or compassionate or kind. So what do you do with that? You know. Any other on your experience? Most of history, the common parishioners weren't even allowed to read it. Yeah, for most of human history, the common person did not read the Bible. That is a fairly recent invention. It really changed right around the Reformation time with the invention of the printing press, so you could more cheaply mass-produce things like the Bible. Although the Bible was very big, and they didn't really mass-produce the whole thing, that was still pretty expensive. Most people couldn't read. To read, you had to be an academic or someone who was from a wealthy family who you had the time to learn to read. Most people didn't. You started working as soon as you could work, you died young, you never learned to read. Um, it was often for a long time in a language that the people didn't understand. In the Middle Ages, the mass was said and the things were spoken in Latin, and if you were in France or Germany or Spain, you didn't know what they were talking about. You stood there, you didn't sit, you stood there for the whole time watching this thing happen, and you had no idea what they were saying. It was um, a heretical offense when uh, Wycliffe in England first translated the Bible into English. He was a heretic because of that. Luther did it with German. Someone? Yeah. Why? How did they come up with so many different types of Bible? I mean, I always assume the Bible is the word, and it's this. So that's our first that's our first question we'll engage. What about all these different translations of the Bible? Are some better than others? Here's something I I want you to understand. Nobody living has ever read anything but an interpretation or a translation of the Bible. Even if I pull out my Greek New Testament or my Hebrew Old Testament, those are still interpretations of stories that occurred over time and were compiled by scribes and scholars. We have never read anything but an interpretation of those stories. So when, you, when people get involved in interpreting, you get different perspectives. So we have all these different translations of the Bible. The first, the first one, the first big one, was from the Hebrew Old Testament to what's called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation, which is still cited a lot. But most of the Jewish people spoke Greek and not Hebrew. So a group of scholars came together and translated it into Greek. So we've never read anything but a translation. And there are different interpretations and there are different perspectives that are brought to it. So some translations like the NIV, the New International Version, or the English Standard Version, which is a more recent one, come from a more conservative scholarly group. 
So they translate some of the words that are a little ambiguous a certain way. Translation is about choosing things. There is no direct line from Hebrew to English. It doesn't exist. The grammar is totally foreign. There is no past, present, and future tense. All the verbs have three letters. There are no vowels. Time is contextual. So there's no straight line. They have to make choices for you to get to English. So if you have a certain theological perspective, that is going to cloud the choices you make when you translate those words. And I don't think it's a conscious choice. I don't think they're setting out and going, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn this into what we need it to be. I don't think it's malicious, but I also don't think they recognize that fact in themselves either. They're making choices for you. There's a documentary coming out um, that I don't know if it got picked up, but it's called 1946. It's the first time that a certain Greek word was translated homosexual in a Bible translation. Before 1946, it was never translated with that understanding. And there are modern scholars that argue that that was a mistranslation of that word, and it never should have been done. So if that documentary is made available, I hope to watch it here and we can talk about it. But I want you to understand that every time you pick up an English Bible, you're reading somebody else's decisions about what it says. It's just the nature of translation. Has anyone ever taken another language and translated from that to English or English to that? It is not easy, is it? And rarely do things line up directly. I was talking to Arlen the other day, and I said, you know, a pet project of mine has always been, and maybe I'll do it sometime, kind of a one-off class where we look at just how hard it is to translate. We take one sentence of Hebrew and one sentence of Greek, and we work at translating that into English and all of the choices that have to be made for that sentence. And we'll pick easy ones. There are a lot harder ones. Judy. So is there a really original Bible? I mean, the first. Is there anything like that? Nope. We only have copies and fragments of copies and fragments. So we, we might get within a few decades of an original document with fragments they have. There's thousands and thousands of uh, papyrus fragments of Greek and Hebrew text that have been found in the desert in the Middle East. The Dead Sea Scrolls, most famously, you know, those were packed into, um, you know, pottery jars and survived for a long time. So no, we don't have any original. This is why when the topic of inerrancy comes up, has anyone ever heard that word inerrant or heard the Bible described as inerrant? It's going to be less in this tradition. So there are those who view the Bible literally and argue that the Bible is inerrant, which means it is without error or contradiction in its original form. They'll throw that tag onto it. But they won't, they'll argue that it is in the English without realizing it. 
Here's the problem with the argument for inerrancy. We don't have in its original form. We don't even have close to its original form. So to me, it's an argument that doesn't mean anything because we don't have it. What I have found, most people who hold that view, what they're really arguing is my interpretation of the Bible is inherent and from God. Therefore, you have to believe the Bible as I believe the Bible. If you really distill what they're arguing, that's what they're arguing. But they're just interpreting it like everyone else. So there are some better translations, I would argue, than others. Um, what I read from is the Common English Bible, which is a fairly recent translation. A couple of my professors were on the committee that did that. Um, I think it tends to try to be a readable, um, a readable text that's easy to understand. The New Revised Standard Version is an old scholarly version that's been updated several times. That's a little harder to read, but I think tries to stay faithful to what's written. So I tend to point people, the message, which we use on Wednesdays a lot, is a paraphrase of the Bible. So Eugene Peterson, a pastor and scholar, he translated the whole Bible, but rather than just try to get it word for word, he really tried to get the concepts down. And he wasn't real worried about following word for word. So it's called a paraphrase. It's not a direct translation. And it's got some value because it's very easy to read. But as we learned a couple of weeks ago, he does gloss over some harder points and try to smooth them out. So you've got to kind of go back to a translation for that. Does that answer your question about different versions? That was one of the questions. So you can find whatever version you like. Kathy. Yeah. But the general, the general Bible, whatever is happening, is usually still there. Yeah, you can go onto the right. You can go onto the web and Bible Hub or Bible Gateway, and you can pull up four or five versions of the same passage and read what they are. And most of the time, they're going to be really close. But there are some times that they're not, and it matters. Um, so just know that. And I encourage people, they used to print, my grandpa had one, a parallel Bible, they were called, where it might have two or four different in parallel um, translations of the Bible. Yeah. Okay. How are we doing for time? I'm going to stop us there, because um, we still have communion to get to. But we're going to continue this next week and talk about contradictions, because that was one of the other questions. What do we do with the contradictions in the Bible? If you hear people say there aren't any, they're not being honest with you. I found on UC Berkeley, someone, a professor for a class on the Bible put together 100 contradictions, and I printed it out, to show you just the differences you get in different books talking about the same stories, and we'll talk about what that means next week. And then any other questions. All right. That was a good start. I don't normally cut us off in discussion, but I can't avoid it today.